All right. Well, good morning, Grace. It's good to be here. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. If you got your Bibles, I would like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Galatians chapter 5 is where we're going to be today. Galatians chapter 5. We're going to do some more singing. We're going to take communion uh, to ring in the new year at the end of the service. But Galatians chapter 5 is, is where we're going to begin. There's a danger in preaching a New Year's sermon. And I preach a lot of New Year's sermons because Pastor Rod works so hard through the Christmas season. You got Christmas Eve, you got Christmas. That's, it's a tough time for pastors because they're always, they oftentimes have to be at the church leading and doing things in Christmas. So I preach a lot of New Year's sermons, but there's some risks with New Year's sermons. For one thing, it's not really technically on the Christian calendar in the same way that Christmas and Easter are, and so it's a bit, in that sense, like doing a sermon for Groundhog's Day, right? which, which if winter sticks around, I might do it, right? I might do it. Uh, it's about a bit like giving a sermon for Groundhog's Day. Secondly, a second complication is oftentimes many of us come out of the Christmas season, the holiday season, even though it's supposed to be kind of a break or a vacation, feeling more tired, sometimes more sick, Right, and like that delightful, adorable niece or nephew or grandchild, or in my case, son or a daughter, gave you what looked like a cookie, but it was actually the flu, right? Delicious. And so you come in tired, sick, maybe even in debt from holiday spending. And then thirdly, there's the risk that a New Year's sermon with its focus, sort of stereotypical focus on resolutions, right? you need to get your stuff together this year, will come across, like Jesus said, of the Pharisees who like to pile on burdens on other people without lifting a finger to help them. Sometimes resolutions can feel a bit like that. Maybe a fourth complication for New Year's sermons is sometimes the resolutions are a little bit cliche. And we already know, I saw a meme this week that said, let me guess, you're gonna cut out all the toxic people from your life Go to the gym, make more money, and focus on you in 2020, right? That just covers it. That's, it's kind of a cliche resolution. And so I don't want to do that today with this New Year's sermon. I don't want to just pile on burdens. Um, I don't want it to be cliche, but I want to ask this question. What does God want to produce in us this year? What does he want to produce in us this year? New Year, and it's a bit of a trick question because I think that the thing he wants to produce in us is produce. And so I brought some produce today. Rod's not here, but Rod, if you're listening, I went to Sprouts. Rod loves Sprouts. I got some really, I don't even know what half of these things are. I grew up in Kansas. This is a, looks, looks like a football that's been deflated. Uh, it's a star fruit. I think it's what they use to make starbursts. Um, so I went to... I went to seminary. So the thing that God wants to produce in us this year and every year is produce. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And so what I want to ask today is what if we shifted the focus in a New Year's sermon from just resolutions per se, dieting, exercise, time management, there's nothing, nothing wrong with those, to the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit that God wants to produce in us. And so Galatians chapter five, Paul writes about the fruit in Galatians chapter five. A little bit of context, the church in Galatia, 
A little bit different than, say, the church in Corinth. They weren't struggling with debauchery and drunkenness and all these crazy sins. They were struggling with this brand of kind of Jewish legalism and ethnocentrism that said, if you want to be a Christian, you got to get circumcised. If you want to get, be a Christian, you got to eat kosher. If you want to be a Christian, you got to become Jewish, right? That's the challenge in Galatia. And it's in the midst of that challenge that Paul writes about the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, the words will be on the screen, verse 16 for context, and we'll read on. It says this, so I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Then in verse 19, the, the works or the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I like that he puts that last, and the like. Anything else, too. Throw that in there, too. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 22, but... The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. This is, this is God's word. If you've got your update, you see on there fruit. The, the big idea from this message is to pick fruit this, this new year. Pick fruit. Pick fruit, first of all, Paul says, over flesh. Fruit over flesh. And, and I brought a picture of a, it looks like kind of like a Sunday school classroom. I don't know how many of you, some of us didn't grow up going to church or Sunday school, and that's okay. I grew up going to Sunday school, and we sang about the fruit of the Spirit. We, we learned a song. I don't know, do you know this song? Oh, you can sing along. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, right? Just at my church? Okay, cool. <laughs> All right, that's all right. It's just, did you take that away? I thought it would be more feedback today, but. Um, but we never say, we never did the inverse of that. We never did the, fruit, the, the, the works of the flesh song, right? The works of the flesh are obvious, debauchery, idolatry, and I'll just stop right there, right? You know where it goes. We never sang about the works of the flesh, but what Paul says in this passage is that before we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, we need to distinguish them from the works of the flesh. Because you will either, it's an either or, you will either be driven by your flesh or you'll be led, guided by the Spirit. But you will be led, you will be mastered, you will be driven by something. You will be shepherded, mastered by either your flesh or you'll be led by the spirit. Absolute freedom is a myth. 
absolute freedom that you can just live your life completely unmastered, undirected, unlorded over, absolute freedom is a myth. And in one sense, that cuts against a certain strand of American individualism. My favorite novel is by John Steinbeck, and it's called East of Eden. I know in Oklahoma, the grapes of wrath, that's more, I've even got some grapes of wrath here. I know that's more well known, but East of Eden is the masterpiece by Steinbeck. And it's this incredible epic of California and the American West and these, these two families. But what it really is, is a retelling of several scenes or stories from the book of Genesis. Sort of Californiaized, Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, Adam and Eve, East of Eden. And Steinbeck puts his kind of American Western spin on it, and he has this quote in East of Eden, it'll be up on the screen, where he says this, the free exploring mind of the individual human is the most valuable thing in the world, and this I would fight for, the freedom of the mind to take any direction it wishes, undirected, that is the one thing that separates us from the beasts. Now, Paul loves freedom. Paul in Galatians in this same section talks about how it is for freedom that Christ has set you free, right? But if Paul were to read that line from Steinbeck, I think he would say, hogwash. Meginoita in Greek, may it never be. Because the idea that you can have an absolute freedom where you're not directed or guided or led by anything is a myth. You'll either be driven by your flesh or you'll be led by the spirit. Absolute freedom is, is a myth. Paul says, choose fruit, pick fruit over flesh. But then we need to ask the question, well, what does he mean by flesh? What does Paul mean by flesh? I mean, flesh sounds like he's talking about your musculature, right? Don't be led by your latissimus dorsi. Don't be led by your, your flesh. You know, we ate some flesh last night on my Traeger. It was delicious. But he doesn't mean literal flesh. For, for Paul, sarks, sarkos, this, this word stands in for kind of a triad of, of ideas. And so the first thing, if we were going to say, what does Paul mean by flesh? He means our fallen human drives. Don't be led, be driven around by your fallen human drives. These drives for, for more money, for more power, for sexual promiscuity, for, for just more and more possessions. That's your, your flesh, those fallen human drives. And all of us can relate to being led or driven by our flesh. Right? The first time that you took a drink of that substance or the first time that you took that particular drug or you engaged in that particular activity and that sort of addictive impulse, the flesh, and you're just like, ruh-roh, <laughs> this is going to be a problem. It's as if my flesh has this pull, this tug, this drive that is greater than my ability to just master it driven by your, your fallen human drives. That's one of the things Paul means by flesh. But he has kind of another definition that works alongside of it. He means your merely human striving. 
The idea that just in my human strength, I can pull myself up by the bootstraps, can perfect, can change my life in my own power. Paul says that's, that's the flesh talking. Amen. It's Abraham and Sarah getting together and say, you know what, God gave us this promise, this child of promise promise, but over there is Hagar, and I think we can accomplish this, this thing in our own flesh. Right? And we turn on the news and we see how that turned out. It didn't work. So the flesh is not just these drives. It's this idea that we can do it on our own. A New Year's resolution might be your flesh talking. Amen. If it's undertaken just in our own strength or our own power. But then thirdly in Galatia, if we want to get at what Paul means by the flesh in this, this church... In Galatia, flesh is a code word for Jewish legalism and ethnocentrism. Because circumcision was an act, Paul says, done in the flesh. It's about the flesh, not the, the spirit. And this sort of legalistic, self-righteous attitude within the leadership or the majority in the Galatian church is about legalism and ethnocentrism. And so when you put these three ideas together for Paul, what does he mean by flesh? You get kind of a provocative idea, and it's this. For Paul, racial or religious self-righteousness, because that's the problem in Galatia, is just as fleshly as drunkenness and orgies and the like. Wow. They're both driven by our fallen human drives. And so in Galatia, this idea that you have to be circumcised to be a Christian, or you have to become Jewish to be a Christian, Paul says that's the same problem as we've got over here in places like Corinth where it's all about debauchery and drunkenness. It's the same culprit, it's the flesh. And Paul says the flesh wars against the spirit. The flesh. And so I thought about that song, not the Fruit of the Spirit song, but the one I made up about the works of the flesh. And I thought, like, how would Paul rewrite the works of the flesh song for 2020? This is going to be a chart topper. <laughs> but there's a little bit of a letdown because I thought so much of it would just be exactly the same. Like, he wouldn't have to tweak it. The works of the flesh are obvious, right? He talks about sexual, sexual immorality, impurity, idolatry. It would just be the same stuff. But some of it would be transferred into maybe a more modern key. The works of the flesh are obvious. Browser history, Twitter fights. <laughs> the works of the flesh are obvious. Materialism and cheering for the patriots. Right? It just, it's... You could tweak it, but many of them are, are the, same, the same thing. These fallen human drives, and I'm joking, so I lament, I don't really lament, but the Patriots are out, so that joke was poorly timed. But this year, I think Paul would say, cultivate, pursue, choose, fertilize the fruit of the Spirit over the works of the flesh. 
Not just dieting, not just exercise, not just time management. Love, joy, peace, the fruit of the Spirit. And so we need to talk about the fruit. What, what are the fruit? And I, I did, I found some, some fruit at Sprouts that I'd honestly never seen before. I apparently left the sticker on so I could return it later. But um, <laughs> some of them Brianna wouldn't let me buy because they were really expensive. <laughs> What are the fruit? And I've often thought of this passage, okay, well, love's one of the fruit, and then joy, that's like another fruit. Love's probably the grapefruit, because it's like the biggest one. But what are the fruit? And as soon as we've posed it that way with a plural, we've already messed up. What are the fruit is a poorly framed way of putting it. There are grammatical sins, amen? If you don't believe that, you can come grade papers with me. Um, <laughs> There are grammatical sins. This is a grammatical sin. What are the fruit? Because Paul doesn't say the fruit of the Spirit, plural, are. Paul says the fruit, singular, of the Spirit is love. And it's almost like they're hyphenated. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. They're all like bound together. They grow, you could say it this way, the fruit of the Spirit grow in clusters. They grow in clusters. They're like a holy GMO. <laughs> and they grow in these, these strange clusters. And it's one of the benefits of the gospel that God isn't just interested in making you just a little bit more patient, but he's interested in growing this cluster of this suite of virtues that come as kind of a package, a package deal. The fruit of the Spirit grow in, in clusters like a holy GMO. You didn't know there was one, but there is. A holy GMO. And it's to, to quote the, the great African-American singer, Billie Holiday, strange fruit in the eyes of the culture. The idea that these could all grow together. And so if you wanted to picture it, you could picture, next slide, picture this, not this, all right? The fruit, if you didn't see the news, there was an artist who, who sold that one on the right for several hundred thousand dollars. So if you go out in the lobby, I've just taped things on the wall if you want to make a donation. Um, it's a cluster, it's a, it's a kind of suite of virtues that come packaged together, choose fruit, over flesh. And when we look at the clusters, they teach us something. They teach us something. It's not just fruit over flesh. The second observation we could say is it's fruit over fights. Fruit of the Spirit over a certain posture of divisive, contentious conflict. Note how many of the works of the flesh involve a sinful form of conflict, right? And we tend to focus, when we talk about the sins of the flesh, right? We almost always mean sexual sins. But when Paul talks about the work of the flesh, note how many of them involve a sort of conflict posture that moves into the territory of sin, right? Because it's possible to have conflict in a virtuous, Christian, godly way. But note how many of the works of the flesh involve hatred, discord, fits of rage, dissensions, factions. So they're, 
their social sins, not just sexual ones. The works of the flesh involve a certain kind of fighting that is sinful. And you, I know what you're going to say, man, I know they dealt with that in Galatia. I'm so glad we've gotten over it. I'm so glad. I mean, they used to have like factions in the ancient world. And these two sides didn't like each other, the Judaizers and the Gentiles. So glad we nailed that one in 2,000 years of history. False. Right? Paul says, choose the fruit of the Spirit. Pick the fruit of the Spirit over these dissensions, factions, fits of rage. You could say it this way. The fruit is not just for our friends. It's for enemies too. Amen. I don't know about you. I like to be stingy with my fruit. I like to dole it out. I'll give it to my kids. They can go get an apple when they want, right? I'll, I'll give it to my friends. You come over, I'll give you an apple. But the idea that I ought to pour out the fruit of the Spirit on those who I don't like grates against my flesh. And Jesus knows that. Jesus says, look, if you're nice to, kind to, just the people who already like you, what good is that? Right? Even the religious hypocrites do that, he says. The fruit is for the people we don't like. Jesus is asking us to show the fruit of the Spirit to that person from the political party that we don't like. I know, I know, I'm nervous. <laughs> He's asking us to show the fruit of the Spirit to that family member that grates against you. You just saw them at Christmas and... He's asking us to show the fruit of the Spirit to that coworker that grates against us. To stop being selective with our fruit dispersal amongst the people that grate against us. Choose fruit, choose fruit, pick fruit over a posture of divisive, factious fighting. Choose to show the fruit of the Spirit even in our disagreements. And I know that's tough. 2020 is an election year. <laughs> We're gonna get frustrated this year. I prophesy it. <laughs> and, and the Bible says, in your anger, do not sin. Show the fruit. Show the fruit even in disagreement with other people. The third, the third command, the third New Year's resolution. Pick fruit, choose fruit over freight. Freight. I had, to, I had to get like a thesaurus to find one that you know kept it with the same letter. But what is freight? To be loaded down with something, to be burdened with freight. What is freight? Freight is the burden of perfection by your own power. Just pile in. That's what Jesus, we talked about earlier, says the Pharisees love to do this. They just pile on the burdens to people, but they don't lift a finger to help them. They pile on freight, the burden of perfection by your own power, that you can do it, that you're good enough, that you have enough potential. There's a common phrase in kind of like the, the therapeutic, um, not real therapy, but you know, like, daytime television therapy, um, you are enough. 
And in one sense, it's not a bad idea. It, I know what's meant by it. But the, one of the beautiful things about the gospel is that Jesus frees us from the burden of needing to be enough. The good news of the gospel is that you are not enough. You cannot be enough. But that Jesus is more than enough. And if you lean into him, if you are connected to the vine, then you'll be okay. The gospel frees us from the freight of needing to be enough. The good thing about fruit, the amazing thing about fruit is fruit isn't forced. You've never walked by an apple tree and just seen it just going like, (sighs) fruit isn't forced. The irony is for Paul, the works in the passage are not the fruit, but the flesh. He distinguishes between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the, the spirit. Fruit isn't forced. Fruit, you could say, next slide, grows naturally, slowly, when it's watered and when it's connected to the source. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches, remain in me. That's the command. The command isn't do it all yourself. The command is remain. I'm the vine, you're the branches, remain in me and you will bear much fruit. God will do it. It's the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of my own moral striving. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit of my own human innate potential or my brilliance. It's the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit will do it. The Spirit that we need to to recognize and to hear within us. And so my application today, aside from my silly singing, is a question, what fruit needs to be fertilized in me this year? What fruit needs to be fertilized in in you this year? If we're going to look at these as a suite, a cluster of virtues, which, which one within your life needs to be fertilized? All of them, fair enough, me too. Sometimes I think of the role of a pastor is to just fertilize. And you could take that the wrong way because sometimes it's a euphemism for manure, but um, (laughs) Paul talks about, look, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. I'm in the planting and watering business. God's in the growing business. What fruit needs to be fertilized? I put some up on the screen. Next slide. Love. Is it love? Is it joy? Do you need to cultivate joy this year? as this defiant, this defiant stand against hopelessness and skepticism, joy? Is it peace? Is it patience? Mine's gentleness. You might think of me as a gentle guy, but when my kids are swarming around me, sometimes I'm not. Can I respond with gentleness this year? Even when I'm disciplining, even when I'm correcting? What fruit needs to be fertilized in me this year? And what can we look to as the proof that God will do it? The fruit, the fruit of the vine growing 
in us. Let me give you a passage that gives us some hope. 1 Corinthians, that other church of Paul's. He writes this. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're going to take communion today. And the fruit of the Spirit is made possible because of the fruit of the vine. Jesus says at the Last Supper, I won't eat again of the fruit of the vine until we do it in the kingdom. And then he gives this powerful symbol that he has given us everything we need for this life. He's given himself. He's given his body and his blood. And so I can't think of a more powerful way to ring in the new year than singing together, receiving communion together. There's three words that the Bible uses for what we're about to do. The first word is Eucharist. Eucharist. And it translates roughly to thanksgiving. Some of you need to come today to dip the bread in the cup and celebrate the Eucharist because you need to give thanks to God for what he's done. And for you, this is a time of thanksgiving, Eucharist. The second word, the second phrase is the Lord's Supper. And it harkens back to the the Last Supper, which isn't a time really of, of partying or celebrating. It's a time of somber reflection repentance, looking at the cross, confessing and receiving forgiveness. For some of you, you need to come and receive the Lord's Supper. And for others, the third word is communion. Koinonia in the Greek translates to fellowship. That the people of God and the Eucharist itself was always a family dinner. We don't come alone, as Steinbeck would have said we come together. So whether it's the Eucharist, whether it's the Lord's Supper, whether it's communion, we go forward in this new year, we pick fruit because Christ has picked us and he's given his body and his blood. Would you stand with me? Let's pray.